if you would take your Bibles and look with me to the book of Exodus, uh, we'll be uh, looking today at our fourth installment on preaching through this book, and uh, the text we'll cover begins in chapter 24, verse 12, all the way through chapter 31, verse 18. So 24, 12 through 31, 18. Uh, now, you'll be able to find chapter 24 on page 65 if you have a Bible from the back or an ESV version, I think. Um, and also, uh, Exodus is the second book in the Bible, so from the cover, if you turn just a little ways, you'll be able to find the book of Exodus. Now, for the public reading of the Word, I want us to look on page 70 uh, and uh, read verses 38 through 46. Page 70, verses 38 through 46. And if you will stand with me once again, please, for the reading of God's inerrant word. Hear the word of the Lord. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs, a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, what a wonderful and astounding text we find in Exodus. Now we pray that you would take, though we are centuries removed, and apply the truths from this text to our hearts today so that we may walk in your presence. So we ask that you would bless the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now so far in the book of Exodus, we've moved from Egypt to Sinai, which is affectionately called the mountain of God. However, we can't forget where the story began. 
The Pentateuch is a unity, and so when you read the book of Exodus, you have to read it with Genesis in mind. And uh, we understand then that the story began in Eden. In man's exile from Eden, he lost the capacity to think of God rightly. Unless God moves in and redeems us, our situation is dire. This is what the movement from Egypt to Sinai is all about. Or we could say it another way. Another way the movement from Egypt to Sinai is a movement from a world that did not know God to a world in which God has decisively made himself known. And when we come to the tabernacle text, God's purpose of making himself known in the Exodus event that we looked at in chapters 1 through 15 is tied to his purpose to dwell among his people. For example, in chapter 25, verse 8, the text says, and this is God speaking, and let them make me a sanctuary. And notice the purpose clause, that I may dwell in their midst. And so we have kind of a restored Eden. Man and God living together. Man living in God's presence. Now, if you remember, all the way back in chapter 6, verse 6, the Lord said to Moses concerning his purpose that he be known these words. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And now, when you look at the text that we read in chapter 29, and you can see added to this purpose of God being known, he said, I'm going to bring you out that you will know that I am the Lord your God, is added this idea of God dwelling among his people. So look once again in 29 uh, verses 45 and 46. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. That's the covenant language. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Exact same words that he used in chapter uh, 6, verse 6. But he adds to that. He goes on and says, Who brought them out of the land of Egypt? And here we have the purpose clause. That I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So the Lord has not only made himself known to the people of Israel and uh, in doing that to the nations, but now he proposes to dwell right smack dab in the middle of the Israelite camp. The holy glory presence of the Lord is going to dwell among a sinful people, and that creates a huge problem. 
The problem of the presence of God among a sinful people. So the tabernacle resolves the issue of the presence of God among a sinful people. We've read it already in chapter 25, verse 8. Let them build me a sanctuary, purpose clause, that I may dwell in their midst. The presence of God in the midst of his people is the essence of the covenant. And so the tabernacle is going to help us to understand how God can be present among a sinful people. Now, when you come to the tabernacle uh, section in Exodus, we're not told a lot about the operation of it. That's for Leviticus. But what I want to do is point out what I think is the purpose of the writer in the way the text is arranged and what he's wanting to communicate to you and to me today in Jackson, Tennessee, where we're sitting. The tabernacle helps us understand how God can be present among sinful people. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, as we point out some themes in this text, first of all, the tabernacle helps us understand the holiness of God. The tabernacle helps us understand the holiness of God. Now, the word for holy is used 52 times in chapters 25 through 31, at least 52 times, I would say then that it is a profoundly important concept in this text. The root word for dwell, I will dwell among them, is used at least 21 times, uh, and you'll see it sometimes translated dwell. Sometimes the word has a prefix added to it, and that makes it translated tabernacle. So the idea of tabernacle is the idea of tabernacling, or dwelling, or being present. God also is not only committed to dwell with his people, he would also meet with the sons of Israel in the tent of meeting, the holy of holies. In verse 43, he says, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat. So in the tent of meeting, from the holy of holies, God would meet with his people. So we have then the Everest of holiness, absolutely committed to dwelling among and meeting with the sons of Israel. Now, it doesn't perhaps sound like a big deal to us, but the God whose glory presence is so holy that he hides it in a cloud. Because the eyes of sinful men cannot see his glory and live. This text puts before us the God who is holy and present. Coupled with people who are sinful. Now, the word sanctuary, back in chapter 25, verse 8, let them build me a sanctuary, has as its root the same word, holy. So the tabernacle is a holy space, just like the ground around the burning bush was holy, or just like the ground uh, on Mount Sinai was holy. It's holy 
Because it is sanctified by the presence of God. So when we think about how can ground be holy, how can the tabernacle be holy, they are sanctified by the presence of God. So in chapter 29, verse 43, he says, There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified, that is, made holy by my glory. So everything related to the tabernacle is holy. It is sanctified by God's presence, by the fact that he laid claim to that space and everything related to it. It was his. It belonged to him. Now in a tabernacle, we learn that God is holy and all other holiness is strictly derived from him. God alone is holy. In his essence, or his essential nature, God is holy. In his essence and essential nature, he defines what holiness is. What is holiness? It is God. So when we say God is holy, we're highlighting his otherness. He is not like us. Martin Luther said to Erasmus, your thought of God is too human. God is a unique being. He's in a class of all his own. He's incomprehensible except by self-revelation. And he is unapproachable except by invitation. So holiness is not determined by what things are in and of themselves, not by the nature of things, but what God makes them to be in the economy of grace. If God says something is holy, trust Him, it's holy. Now you'll see in the tabernacle, interestingly, holiness is just a fascinating topic in this text. And you'll see that there are gradations of holiness. Some things are more holy than other things. Now, I don't necessarily understand how that works, but it's a reality in the tabernacle. There are three courts. There's the courtyard. There's the holy place. And then the most holy place. Now, obviously, the most holy place is holier than the holy place, right? That's why you call it the most holy place. So what you see in the reality is of the tabernacle, the closer you move to the holy of holies, the holier everything gets. Down to the thread and the cloth and the materials and everything. So holiness is seen in gradations in the tabernacle. Now also, interestingly, things in the tabernacle, are said to be holy. The Ark of the Covenant is holy. The mercy seat is holy. The table is holy. The bread on the table is holy. The altar of sacrifice is holy, and whatever touches the altar of sacrifice is holy. The priestly garments are holy. The anointing oil is holy. The incense is holy. They're holy because they are things God has laid claim on to be devoted completely to Him. So they are said 
to be holy. This helps us understand the concept of holiness. It is not first and primarily ethical and moral. It's in relation to God. Now also in the tabernacle, people were said to be holy. Especially the priest. Because what we're going to deal with in this section eventually is the priestly section. For example, in 2944... Uh, we can see that God is going to sanctify Aaron and his sons. In the last part of, uh, of that verse, Aaron and his sons, I will consecrate, that is, make holy, to serve me as priest. Now, their holiness, Aaron and his sons, was not first and primarily ethical and moral, but rather that God laid claim on them and they were devoted to his service. So God is holy, and everything related to the tabernacle derived holiness from him because it was claimed by him and devoted to him. God, in his essence, is holy. We are holy, first and foremost, Because God makes us holy. In fact, in uh, chapter 31, verse 13, when he uh, relates the Sabbath, God says that he's giving Israel the Sabbath as a sign that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify, that is, make holy. I make you holy. That I, the Lord, make you holy. Holy. God laid claim on Israel and that made them holy. Now what is meant by being a holy nation that we saw in chapter 19, God would make them a holy nation, a a royal priesthood. That will be worked out in the day-by-day services of the tabernacle. But don't lose sight. They were made holy first. And then after being made holy, holiness was to be lived out in a daily turning from sin and trusting God. The daily sacrifices that we read about at the beginning of the text. So do you see then... That holiness is first a marvelous gift of God's grace. Everyone in Christ is holy and they are holy because they are in Christ. And so before we can speak of being put to holy use, we must see that our sanctification is first of all God's act of setting us apart from the world for himself. So when you have a Christian... Someone who claims to be a Christian, who lives in rebellion against God, in in openly ongoing sinful ways. It's kind of like if you left church today and you went to a stranger's house and you just walked in and said, hello family, I'm home, and you sat down at the table and started eating. They would look at you and they would say, you don't belong here, right? I hope they would. If they don't, you really need to get out of there. 
If you're a Christian and you're doing that, you don't belong there because you've been made holy by God. So what happens, this declaration of holiness, this definitive being made holy by God is to be lived out. We are to be in our lives what He, by His grace, has made us to be. So start living like who you are. So the tabernacle then helps us understand holiness, and it resolves the issue, a very important issue, of how sinful people are going to be able to live in the presence of holy God. Secondly, the tabernacle echoes Sinai, pointing to life with God in a fallen world. The tabernacle perpetuates the Sinai experience of the presence of God among his people. It is the architectural embodiment of the mountain of God. So the purpose, then, of the tabernacle is that God would move from the top of Mount Sinai, where we see him in his shrouded glory, into the tent in the middle of the camp. So the purpose of the sanctuary is that the Lord may dwell no longer outside the camp, but at the very center of the camp. Now, it's important to see how this is communicated in the text because I think it's one of the primary purposes of the way Exodus has been handed to us. So you will see that uh, in the book of Exodus, the very end of chapter 24, all the way to the end of of, of Exodus, chapter 40, is bookended. And it's bookended by the glory presence of God. So, for example, if you look in chapter 24, uh, verse 16, it says, The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Then, if you look all the way to the end of the book of Exodus... In chapter 40, it's bookended like this. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Back in chapter 24, when the cloud came on the mountain, God called Moses up into the cloud. When we get to chapter 40, verse 35, and Moses was not able to enter into the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And so we're bookended by the glory presence of God to show us that the Sinai experience is perpetuated in the tabernacle. The Lord descended on the mountain, but he's going to dwell in the tabernacle. That is, he's moving in. The tabernacle also was constructed according to the pattern that God showed Moses on the mountain. For example, back in chapter 25, verse 9, God uh, tells Moses, you're going to build the tabernacle exactly 
As I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And then in chapter 25, verse 40, and see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. In uh, 26, verse 30, then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And then in chapter 27, verse 8, you shall make it hollow with boards as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. And so the tabernacle looks like the mountain where God's presence will dwell. Now, you remember the foot of the mountain? Moses had to go up and down the mountain four times to make sure that no one broke the barrier at the bottom of the mountain. And so the foot of the mountain corresponds to the outer court of the tabernacle where the altar of sacrifice was. Now, there was a second zone on the mountain where Aaron and the elders of Israel could go, and that's where they had a meal with God in uh, chapter 24, verses 4 and 5. That corresponds to the holy place in the tabernacle beyond the altar of burnt offerings. In the first tent, the holy place, where is the lampstand and the bread of presence and the table and the altar of incense. That's the second zone. Now, only the priests, could enter the second zone, and they were consecrated for that task. The final zone is where the glory presence of God dwelled, on the top of the mountain. Only Moses was called up to the top of the mountain to enter the cloud, into the glory presence of God that corresponds to the most holy place in the tabernacle where only the high priest would enter, and he only once a year. Now, interestingly, in this text... There's another bookend, and don't you just love bookends in the text? I love bookends because they help you understand what the text is about. And that is, uh, there's this way that the tabernacle echoes Sinai in the giving of the law. And so you can see in chapter 24, verse 12, for example, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. And then when you get to chapter 31, verse 18, the end of this section of text, what happens? And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on the mountain, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Isn't that beautiful language written with the finger of God? The law. Come up here, I'm going to give it to you. In between, God tells him the instructions for building the tabernacle. And at the end of the instructions for building the tabernacle, what does he do? He gives him the tablets. Come up here for this. Here it is. Here's what you must do. Now, the tablets of stone, we're going to learn in chapter 25, were to be placed 
in the Ark of the Covenant and covered by the mercy seat. So look in chapter 25, verse 16. And you shall put into the Ark the testimony. Now that's the way the tablets of stone are referred to. That I shall give you. And then notice in verses 21 and 22, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the top of the ark of the testimony. God in His kindness gave the tabernacle and put the law covenant in the ark and covered it with a mercy seat. Now, this ark of the covenant in the most holy place is the footstool of the throne of God. And it's interesting that we have this translated mercy seat. We can thank Tyndale for that. It's a translation that has, that has endured and has been endearing to all of us. The mercy seat, it's a wonderful thing. But I think we could better understand it if we called it the seat of mercy. Mercy seat, seat of mercy. We're not to think of it like a chair. We're to think of it like the place from which mercy is dispensed. A literal translation of it would be atonement cover. This is a place where Aaron would enter on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the lid of the mercy seat. And it was there that God would act in mercy to His people. It is the place where mercy triumphs over judgment. Do you see the grace of God? Here's the tablets of stone that you can never keep. And I'm going to cover your transgression with mercy. Now there's one other way I want to point out. I'm sure there are others. That Sinai, the Sinai experience of the presence of God perpetuated the tabernacle, and that is in the altar of incense. And you can see the description of the altar of incense in chapter 30, verses 1 through 10. From the beginning, as we've uh, read Exodus, the glory presence of God has been shrouded in a cloud. The altar of incense was to be placed right in front of the veil, separating the holy place from the holy of holies. And so the incense would create a cloud, and the veil and the incense operated like a cloud before the glory presence of God. Now it's interesting to me, we won't see it in Exodus. Like I said, Exodus doesn't tell us much about how all this worked. But when we get to the part that tells us about how all it worked in the book of Leviticus on the Day of Atonement, 
when Aaron would go inside the Holy of Holies, he would take a censer and two handfuls of incense, and he would put the handfuls of incense on the censer that had coals from the altar so that a cloud was created. And that's the exact language that Leviticus uses in chapter 16, verses 12 and 13 of Leviticus. That a cloud would come up simulating the Sinai experience to cloud the glory presence of God so that Aaron would not die. The tabernacle we see then echoes Sinai pointing to life with God in a fallen world. Now, third, I want you to see that the tabernacle echoes Eden and points to the new creation. These uh, final 16 chapters of Exodus, chapter 25 all the way through 40, are interesting because you have the instructions for building the tabernacle. Before Moses can get down off of the mountain with the tablets of stone, you have the golden calf. And then after that, you have the covenant renewal and the actual building of the tabernacle. Now, this shows us the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, and redemption. The tabernacle points back to Eden, but the echoes to Eden are not so much Eden before the fall, but after the fall. So what I want us to see is how the tabernacle echoes creation and anticipates new creation. The tabernacle reflects Eden after the fall. If you remember the story, uh, Adam was expelled from the garden east of Eden. And you just always wonder, why does the text give you a direction? Well, you just look in Genesis, and east is always away from God. And when God expelled Adam from the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim with flaming swords guarding the entrance to the garden. On the east side, obviously. One way in, one way out, nobody's going in. Right? The tabernacle had one gate. You want to guess on which side it was? The east. And so you can see that in chapter 27, verses 13 through 16 of this text. If you were an Israelite looking in from the east to the west, you would see in front of you the altar of burnt offering. Smoke of that perpetual sacrifice rising up in the air. Beyond it, there was a basin where the priests had to wash before they would go in the holy place. And you know that just beyond that basin, 75 feet in front of you is a place where you can never go. Inside that holy place, there's a lamp. And there's a table with bread. Lamp on one side of the room. Table with bread on the other side of the room so that the lamp casts light light across that room. 
And it's just kind of homey. Has a nice incense altar, scented candle, right? It's real homey. And it's meant to be homey because when we're in the presence of God, we're at home. And there's food, and the priest would go in there and eat the bread of presence. And they fellowshiped with God. And you knew as an Israelite walking in there, I cannot go. Just beyond that altar of incense, there's the Holy of Holies where the glory, presence of God is. And what's sewn into the curtain? Cherubim. What rises up above the mercy seat, the footstool of the throne of God? Cherubim. And those cherubim testify to you that you cannot go in. And you know that the only way you can live is to get inside that room. And you know that if you go, you'll die. What do you do? There's one that can go beyond that veil. So when you see the tabernacle, it testifies to Eden after the fall. Barred from the presence of God. But it points to new creation. God's intention to dwell with us again. So the tabernacle is a step forward in the history of redemption. It anticipates the completion of our redemption and God dwelling with His people and us dwelling with Him in the exile. The other huge event in the Old Testament. Exodus and exile. God's presence abandoned the temple and abandoned the land and the people were carried away and we don't see or we don't hear of the tabernacling presence of God again until Genesis. And then we hear John the Apostle say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's the same word, tabernacle. The tabernacling presence of God dwelt among us. And then notice these wonderful words. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One day the tabernacle will find its ultimate fulfillment in the new heavens And a new earth and a voice from heaven will cry out and say, Behold, the dwelling place, that is, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell, that is, He will tabernacle with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be their God. The tabernacle says, We will dwell with Him again. One final point. Because, see, we just can't end right there, can we? Because we're still on the outside looking in. Number four, the tabernacle teaches us the need for a mediator 
as our representative before God. The tabernacle joins the mission of God in creation. Adam was to extend Eden to encompass the earth. His job was simple. Work and keep the garden. You know when you get to Numbers, that's the description of the priestly task in the tabernacle? That is, they were to guard the sanctuary and serve its purpose in the world. What is the purpose of the sanctuary in the world? We've read it again and again in this text. And that is that the Lord might dwell among His people. The priests were to bring the people to God. How would they do that? So right in the middle of this text, in chapters 28 and 29, you have a description of the priestly garments and their consecration. Now, the description of the priestly garments are something to behold. I want you to see in uh, chapter 28, verse 2, and then you'll see it again all all the way over in chapter 28, verse 40, that the garments for Aaron, your brother, are for glory and for beauty. Then the caps and the coats and the sashes for Aaron and his sons were for glory and beauty. That is, the clothes that they wore testified of the ideal priesthood, something that they could never be. When Aaron dressed in his high priestly garment, he must must have been a sight to see. He had on his priestly tunic, and then on top of that, he wore an ephod. And so the text tells us about the ephod beginning in chapter 28, verse 6. And on the shoulders of the ephod is like a waistcoat, I suppose. I've never seen one. But on the shoulders of the ephod were two stones. And on these stones were engraved the names of the sons of Israel. And so you can see in chapter 28, verse 9, you shall make two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. When Aaron would go before the Lord, he would bear the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulder. Look what the text says in verse 12, in the last part of verse 12. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his shoulders for a remembrance. How will the sons of Israel be brought into the presence of God? They'll be brought in on the presence of a priest, a mediator. But that's not enough. Because affixed to the ephod, then you have the breast piece of judgment. And the text talks about that in in, the Verse 15 of chapter 28, and on the breast piece is four rows of three stones. Each stone has engraved on it the name of a son of Israel. And Aaron would bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breast piece of judgment on his heart when he would go into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord, says verse 29 of chapter 28. And then there's these mysterious things called Urim and Thummim. 
And they're in the breastpiece, the breastpiece of judgment. And Aaron is to bear them in his heart. Notice what verse 30 says, the last part of verse 30. There Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel in his heart before the Lord regularly. Now what does it mean he would bear the judgment? That's the only place in Old Testament where that phrase is used. Now obviously it's not condemnation. Because Aaron can't bear the condemnation of the people. And obviously, these are jewels, which incidentally recall Eden. And so this idea of judgment is the idea of declaration or decision. When Aaron would appear before the Lord in fellowship with the Lord... Bearing on his heart the sons of Israel. How would they get into the holy place? They'd get there in the person of the priest. And God's decision about them in the person of the priest was acceptance. You are my treasure. We have a high priest who's gone into the most holy place. Bearing our names in a way that Aaron could never bear their names. The weight of our need on his shoulder, the deficiency of our lives placed on his heart. And by his own blood he purchased the way into the Holy of Holies, and there sprinkled His blood on the mercy seat, and the veil fell, so that we, looking out, have an invitation to walk right in because of the person of our High Priest. So the tabernacle teaches us that we need a mediator. To enter the presence of God. Dear friend, what that means is that you may not approach God on your own terms. You approach God on His terms. The God that we're dealing with today, the one that everyone talks about so casually... And the one uh, that people just say God's okay with this and God's okay with that, they obviously don't know the God they're talking about. He's the same God as the God whose glory presence dwelled in the tabernacle. He's not less holy. And you see, it's inconceivable that someone would stand looking through the gradations of holiness and say concerning the the God whose glory we may not lay our eyes on, I'll go any way I please. No, you
There's one way in. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ who took our sin upon himself. So that you and me can go in freely. Now we're going to come to the table this morning. And if you've never received the Lord Jesus into your life, and if you're not a member of an evangelical church in good standing, then we ask you just to let the trays go by. We don't want to embarrass you in any way. But this is for those whose faith rests in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let this not be a wasted time, but a time where the invitation once again comes to you that the way to God's presence is through His Son. Let this be a reminder that He died and He rose again so that you might know the forgiveness of sin and have eternal life. And then we would ask you that you just make that public in baptism. Declaring that your faith is in Christ alone. And so we're going to take just a moment of silence as the band comes. And then we're going to eat the bread and drink the cup after it's passed out all together. Okay? So let's, uh, let's bow our heads for just a moment.